episode 285, the fascinating story of billions of dollars going missing when the back office pays healthcare bills. Today, I am speaking with Dawn Cornelis. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I'm going to summarize some points that Dr. Marty McCary made in his manifesto for why he wrote his most recent book, The Price We Pay is its name. You can hear this manifesto in his own words, in Dr. McCary's own words, on Relentless Health Value, episode 242. But here's his point. He said that the 2007 banking crisis, writ large, resulted from complexity that kept onlookers confused. So when people questioned the banks being over leveraged and selling mortgages to, you know, those who couldn't afford them, experts responded by saying in quotes, you know, it's very complicated, leave it to us. But on the ground, it was clear there was a problem. And in hindsight, there obviously was a problem. Here's the point that Dr. McCary was making, which I think is super valid. Many of the entrenched stakeholders in medicine fend off criticism by claiming that these are highly complex systems that should be left to experts. They say, in air quotes, you wouldn't understand. Leave it to us. And just like the experts in the banking industry got us into the calamitous Great Recession in 2007-2008, the experts that we're leaving it to in healthcare have driven ever higher prices for care that I'm going to say that most in the healthcare industry who actually care about patients are certainly not proud of. Today, I'm speaking with Dawn Cornelis, co-founder and director of transparency at Claim Informatics. We get into what sounds so simple. Self-insured employers having their medical bills paid by a third party who specializes in paying medical bills. Maybe these third parties even say that they give all the bills the once-over before they pay them. Except when a company like Claims Informatics reviews the same bills, they find savings in the double digits from paying bills that are wrong at some level or just flat-out fraud. Considering that by some estimates, there's like a trillion dollars lost in this country to some level of fraud, waste, and abuse, this is pretty much the opposite of poking around in the couch cushions looking for change. While there's certainly a lot of details, it's not really that complicated. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dawn Cornelis, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your uh, podcast today. Appreciate it. So one of the things that you have talked quite a bit about is what you call, you know, and I'm using air quotes, but you can't see them, the, uh, the story in the data. In your role, you see a lot of employer data go by, you know, the claims that a self-funded employer is paying. What does the story of this data show you? What we see is there's a lot of bad, egregious behavior out there in the data. I mean, approximately 30%. So if we're looking at, you know, $3.7 trillion in healthcare expenditures, that's close to a trillion dollars a year. It's a $1 billion a day problem. Who's responsible for this? It just like, let's just talk about the who, not necessarily the what, but like these claims are being submitted by whom? Yeah. So there's two parties, right? You have the service entity, the provider of healthcare service, and then you have the payer, the one that's actually processing the claims. So there's a cycle, right, for claims to be processed. And it starts out at whether the doctor's office or the hospital. 
and the claim flows through electronically through a really sophisticated complex system and ends up in some computer system at the you know whether it's a Cigna or Aetna or uh, Blue Cross or a third-party administrator and they process those claims. Now for looking at the what. You've said that there's three problems that you typically find in the data when you look at it. So let's just start out. What are those three problems? The first thing is are claims being paid correctly? The second thing would be, what is it that we don't know and what can we do better in the best interest of the member? The third thing would be just plain wrong. Let's go to that first one then, which is, were the claims paid correctly? What percentage of savings to a purchaser of healthcare, like a self-insured employer, for example, does this typically represent? Plans that have we've recognized and identified losses as high as 18%. And but our typical range varies between five and ten percent. So five and ten percent of the claims, you know, the total aggregate claims, they just aren't paid right. It's like there's just a mistake, you know, the bill is for 10 bucks and they're paid for 15. And there's gonna be different types, right? You're gonna have where, oh my gosh, the provider should not have billed that code. They unbundled things, they they billed incorrectly, right? And the payment system didn't capture it. So just let it fly through and get paid. Or do you have that fat finger mistake where they just build the wrong code and they didn't realize it? It could be that somebody is actually sending the wrong bill, but it also could be that there's a tangle in the processing, like, you know, how that claim is being processed. Yep. Yeah. So the employers become surprised, right? When when we come in and we look at the data, there's three things that I think there's always, it's just the same scenario in, in every situation. And that there's just like, I call the three myths, right? of billing coding by providers is accurate and honest, that everybody thinks that everybody is up to par and that it's accurate and it's honest and that nobody's abusing the system. The second thing would be my healthcare payer, you know, my carrier, we'll call it because we know the employer is actually the payer, so we won't get into that, the words that we use there, but the folks that are responsible for paying the claims, right? That they're, they have a system in place that catches billing and coding errors and that captures mistakes that their systems are occurring and And that there's somebody always looking back to make sure that things are being processed. And yes, there are payment integrity programs out there. But when we look at the data, we should see that, right? We should see things are being re-adjudicated and fixed. And we're not seeing that. The third myth would be, if I don't know there's waste in my claims, then I'm not at risk. And for self-funded entities that are under ERISA and federal guidelines, that cannot be so further from the truth. You know, the old saying, what you don't know won't hurt you, too often, that's going to be proven false. You said a couple of things that I just want to circle back on. One of them is you aren't necessarily seeing our typical cohort of payers pushing back on invoices, you know, like as you'd expect them to be doing. Is that kind of um, like a Boolean toggle? Like you're just, they're just paying every single bill and you're not seeing any of them push back? Or is it some continuum that you're not seeing them push back on the number of bills that once you guys get involved, you're realizing are in fact wrong? There are systems in place that do the best job it can. And we noticed a varying factor between, we'll call it carriers, okay, the national carriers. There's a varying degree at how sophisticated their systems are to stop fraud, waste, and abuse, to stop just simple payment errors. And some are good at it and some are really bad at it. Bad at it meaning they can do a lot better. Like when we see common errors that should just be automatic, meaning they're 100% preventable, 
with just simple technology that might have been developed back in 2012, by the way. And we're not seeing that activity in 2020. There's a problem. Why aren't they doing that? Like, it's kind of like you got one job. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, what's the why here? The rationale that we typically hear, that's unacceptable, by the way. The rationale is, well, we have to consider our entire book of business. And that would just shut down the system. So we can't have that. We'll have too many appeals. So we're just going to let these fly through. And if we capture them on the back end, great. Because we do have payment. They'll say that they do have payment programs that have a post-payment review and that they are effective tools that do retract at plan assets when they've been overpaid. So let's make it very clear. The payers, carriers, they know that inappropriate dollars go out on a daily basis. It's not that it's not known. And my mindset is, if you know it, it needs to be fixed because we can't spare 5%. We can't spare 10%, not much less that 18% school district that we had that, that lost all that money. We've got to be able to do better. Those same programs, by the way, that are national big box vendors are on the other side of the fence as well, what we call revenue optimization. Let me just interject here because I think what you're talking about right now is the same... Can we get some names here? Because I'm not exactly sure who... Like, Who do you yeah. mean by... Publicly traded companies, anybody that has business with like the states or, you know, Medicare that does audit identification recovery, HMS, Performant, Contivity, Optum, that's owned by United. They've all have their segment in both sides of the industry where we optimize revenue for the providers. And that's okay to do that as long as it's within compliance, right? So effectively, what you're saying is that the vendors an employer might hire to ensure that claims are paid correctly is the same vendor that also has another business unit working with the health systems to maximize revenue. That's correct. So who are they loyal to? You know, like they're looking at the they're looking at the bills that an employer is paying and employers catching on one side of the thing. And then, you know, maybe they're giving that information to the other side of the house that's telling hospitals this is what they're doing over there. Yeah. So if I know, and again, there's, you have fraud, waste, and abuse. There's three words, right? Each one actually is unique. Meaning a waste is like, oh, it should have never been, you know, why did you do that x-ray, right? But abuse is where a lot of folks cross the line and they think it's okay. And if they cross the line for maybe a year and two years, and they, they just increase their revenue by 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, and nobody's saying anything about it. And then maybe somebody knocks on the door and says, oh, hey, you know what? We shouldn't have paid that. We need to retract some of those payments back. Oh, if I'm only giving 10 cents back on the dollar, okay. I'm not, nobody's, you know, we're not getting in trouble for it. There's systems in place that if I bill certain ways, like I went to a a provider's office and said, hey, you want to increase revenue by 20%? This is what, there's so many different things that you can do to increase revenue by 20%. It's that easy because the system's in place they're there to capture it, are just not where they should be right now. When you say increased revenue by 20%, you mean a health system? Yeah. Okay, so basically the big box vendor goes over to the health system. You want to increase revenue by 20%? Let me show you how you do it because I know how the employer's, you know, traps work, if you will. You know, like how employers are determining what is being improperly paid and I, you know, can get around my own traps. (laughs) And in some cases, because I've got some really good doctor friends out there that they've been approached many times. I always have to set the record straight and they actually are convinced, no, it's okay. Because everybody over in Idaho is doing it too. It's their this is okay to build this way. And I'm like, no, it's not. But, you know, they, so they're actually convinced. There's seminars that they go to that they get convinced. Now, I'm not saying everybody's out to rip off the system, but when it becomes the norm, that's what's very bothering. 
what we see in 2020 compared to the abuse of billing 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, it is much different. There is more of it. And when you look at the charts on revenue optimization firms and you look at the growth in that market, and you look at the improper payment rates that are still up there and they're not going down, that is factual information that supports what I'm saying today. What's the barrier here? You know, like if I'm I'm an employer, I mean, maybe I just don't know, but I'm an employer and I'm using, you know, one of these big box places that is working both sides of the fence here. But beyond, I just didn't know, are there any other barriers to an employer getting a handle and making sure that their bills aren't are paid right? Yeah, there are barriers in the marketplace. I like to call them hurdles because we've had a couple ERISA cases that have really paved the way and is opening the door up to clients accessing their data. You just inferred one, which I just want to make sure is we're stating explicitly. So one of these barriers is employers actually getting hold of their data so that they can audit it themselves. Absolutely. Okay. The one number one barrier that I always start off with, let's look at your ASO agreement. Let's look at that agreement that you have between you, uh, the employer, and the, we'll call it the carrier slash payer. That agreement is usually... <laughs> Usually after we've gone through the agreement, they're like, I had no idea we signed up for this. Like, I did not know. The consultant didn't know. The the fiduciary attorney that looked at it did not know. The way they write contracts, and I'm sure there's a proper word for this, but they just mingle everything up. And anybody that just looks at it from a layman says, okay, everything looks cool here. And when we come in, it's like, no, we're going to show you exactly what they're going to say to you right when you approach them to say, we want our data. And we're going to show you where it's at so that we can strategize together. The agreements that are out there right now are in total violation of federal RISA guidelines. We're trying to get that change. We're trying to uh, get our clients to say, you need to take a stand and you need to get an RISA attorney and you need to change your agreement because that's going to be your first mitigation act that you need to have as a fiduciary. You know, these employers, some of them do not understand the responsibility that they hold as a fiduciary. That being said, it sounds like if you are working with an attorney knows what they're doing. If you're working with an organization such as yours, who obviously has seen a lot of these agreements, that push comes to shove, an employer can get their data. Yes. Large carriers have these type of arrangements that allows them, and this is what really blows the socks over people. They have in their provisions, oh, it's okay for us to share your data with all of our friends, all of our all of our vendors. We'll send, we can send all of our data outside. Your data, we are allowed to do whatever we want with it. But when it comes to you and that's giving you your data. No, there's a different rule set for that. We're, we'll give you data, but we're not going to, we can't, we can't share what our, we can't share this, we can't share that, but it's okay for us to send out the data to these other vendors. And that to me is just, it's just wrong, period. I don't know how anybody can substantiate that. The party that writes the check that is fully responsible legally does not have access to all data points. It is something that is a, we call it a hurdle, not a barrier. And I think once carriers realize that there's a credible organization that's going to be handling the data, that gives a lot more support than just an employer going by themselves and saying, I want to have our CPA look at our data. Let's go to number two in our list of what are the problems that you tend to find in the data when you wind up looking at it. So the first one was just, we covered a bunch of other things in the context of the first one, but it's kind of like, you know, were claims paid correctly, just, you know, accounting wise in a way. The second one that you mentioned is what we don't know about, but could do better. Our lenses, when we look at data, is what's in the best interest of the member and just makes life easy that way. So when you look at the data and you say, wow, what are the really 
key cost drivers. We know what you might have been told at renewal. Oh, there's a 15% renewal because, you know, high cost claimants. But really, what are those? What, let's figure out why the costs are going up or what can we do to do better to reduce those costs. We look at, you know, what is the network effectiveness? What have you been told? Okay, what, 65% effective discount, 75%? We take that myth and throw it out once we show the data to say, let's really look at what is the cost drivers, what's working too. Well, give me an example of something that, that you know, you've seen that's working where you're like, okay, well, we figured out what's working. Let's do more of that. Yeah. So there's regional networks in certain areas of the country. Well, I mean, we're like, my mouth is open, right? You can't visualize that, but I'm like, I'm in awe. My jaw's dropping going, wow, they did a great job on their contracts. They're using Medicare Plus. They've got some, some reasonable contracts and it's fair. That's in the best interest of the member. Because remember, everything's tied to how much that member is going to have to dwell. And, and then when we compare it to some of the large networks, we're like, oh, these folks don't even know. They have, they, like if they move, they were convinced to go over to the, a large, let's call it a large national network, their costs are going to increase dramatically if they, if they change. Let's not talk about reducing costs because reducing costs, it's already beyond. Like the money should have never been spent, right? So let's look at what's fair, what should have been paid and what's fair for all parties, including that health system, by the way. In the example of the regional health plan, you know, effectively, a lot of times employers have several networks that employees can choose from. You know, they've got several health plans and, you know, you've got your high deductible vendor and you've got your, you know, PPO vendor. So basically what you're saying is if you discover in this particular case, maybe you'll discover that one of those preferred provider networks is better than another. So you could go back to the employer and say, like, look, maybe you want to drive more business their way because they're serving you and the employees much better than, you know, some other plan design that you may be getting from someone else. Is that what I'm understanding? Right. And it's not our goal to like change, like, oh, come over here and do that. We're just bringing out data is the truth, right? See, it's not so much the health system and what they are charging. It's about what the agreement is with that healthcare, what the contracted rate is agreed to. That's what drives our cost. In this kind of second category, it's not that the bill is wrong. It's that what you agreed to pay for is wrong. If you look through the data, you can show that, oh, well, employer, did you know that you're paying, you know, you paid 650 grand for somebody's knee replacement when there's another place that's 22 that's actually better? You're kind of aggregating, this is what's wrong. This is where you're overpaying. And then once an employer has that information, you know, you can't do anything about things you don't know. So once this information is brought to light, then that employer can contemplate how they want to move toward things that are working well and move away from things that clearly they're overspending. Data-driven decisions. There we go. You know, I, I know I mentioned a lot about the carriers and national carriers and uh, I I'm not here to pick on anybody, but data speaks for itself. And what we see is atrocious with some of our clients and what we see and what they're paying for. And when we bring that to light, it changes the dynamics. Now employers have something that they can use to make better decisions for their members. And they really, truly want to do that, by the way. You know, we talk about claims and we talked about things being improperly paid and fraud, waste and abuse and the impact on the system. But there's also a lot of hidden little cost drivers that folks are totally clueless with. And it's in their agreement. It's just they didn't know how that impacts. We call it hidden fees. I'm not going to make any assertion that folks are trying to hide things. 
But hidden fees is used because it's not transparent to the employer. So when I get a bill and I'm paying for fees, you get an invoice, right? Okay, it's per member per month. I paid that. I'm paying this invoice because there's a shared savings program. You'll see a percentage for that. And then there's just other things that are in there, but I'm not. it's not on the reports. So one key element, if anybody walks away from this uh, session that we have, and if they can just ask for, what am I paying for? Give me a list of every fee that is associated with processing claims. And a lot of it's hidden into the uh, recovery programs that they have. There's fees associated with, if you go use this other network over here, we're going to get a percentage of savings. So the higher the dollar, the charges, the higher the savings, the higher the fee. Those types of fees need to be examined because we have some clients that actually pay more in those hidden fees than they actually pay for the per member per month charge to process claims. And there's something wrong with that. Again, hidden fees sort of falls into this, what don't we know about what we could do better? So it might be stuff with the care itself that it's just like suboptimal or too much payments being made to put it more bluntly. But then also there's there's hidden fees, there's little other things which could ultimately add up based on what you just said to be considerable total dollars if you look at it in the aggregate. And, you know, there's no value there. It's not like it's the mm-hmm. employee is getting any health care out of that middleman charging that upcharge. Excellent point you just made there. And in some cases, what we think the provider's getting paid, they may have not even gotten that full payment because there's some other agreement in there that says, oh, we don't necessarily are going to pay that provider everything that we're telling you we're paying them. So that's a whole, probably another podcast right there. But that's that's coming out into light, right? The more people that have access to data, the more information is being ascertained and the truth comes out. And it's, it's not things that we all like to talk about, but look, it's an unsustainable system. So we have to deal with it, don't we? And we no longer can put our blinders onto it. So let's talk about the third thing in our list of, you know, what are the problems that we find in the data when we when we look for it? So recapping, the first one is were claims paid correctly. The second one is, you know, what we don't know about, but we could do better. And, and here's the third one that you had mentioned. Let's ID anything that shouldn't be there at all. In other words, assuming we're talking about fraud here. Exactly. And, and one of the largest amounts that we find across the board, by the way, 3%. across the board today, that's the minimum that we are going to identify where we call it claims are being billed and unbundling. They're taking codes and they're billing five codes and they should only be billing one code. Let me just unpack that for a sec. When you say unbundling, so like there was some kind of contractual terms that said for this bundle, like for this total knee replacement or whatever, you're going to bill these things. And then the person is actually, the health system is actually billing. They're attaching other things onto the bundle when that bundle should have been all inclusive. Yeah. I mean, that's a fair description. It's it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to have a knee replacement and there's two codes that cover a knee replacement and that's all we should see for a knee replacement. But they took, procedures that are within those two codes and they build for those also. They call it bundling. So they build, but it's only two codes that should be billed. They'll build six codes. The other four is part of those two codes. So like one code is like A, B, and C. So they're billing the one code for A, B, and C, but then they're also billing A <laughs> separately. Exactly. Yes. Right. I see. Uh, it's, it's simple, right? And by the way, it's illegal to do that. People don't realize like it's illegal to do unbundling, but there's no accountability in the industry that has come to a place where it's like, okay, doctor, you've been doing it for the last three years. We caught you or health system, wherever it might be. 
And we just were asking for the money back. And so, okay, I didn't, I just got a, a slap on the wrist. Do you think that behavior is going to change? You know, the rules are very clear, by the way. It's like, here, these three codes can't be billed together. It's that. But you continue to bill them. And the system today is, go ahead and bill them. And if we catch it, we'll get our money back. And that's about it. There's no enforcement on it. And if you look at, you hear about all the cases for DOJ, right? And you hear about the big one that just came out on the $438 million for Stanford Hospital. And they did exactly that, by the way, what I just mentioned, the unbundling. They were just a big article that just came out on that one. And, you know, they'll pay dimes on the, on the millions to, for the, a settlement and they'll just have an agreement to say, okay, we won't do it again. And that's it. No, there's no type of enforcement. You know, if I go rob a bank, right, and I take money, I'm going to go to jail. But you can go into the health system and literally rob the health system and get a slap on the wrist. And it could be into the billions of dollars. You don't even, I don't think any bank robbers have gotten billions of dollars, but in the healthcare system, it's kind of like an open market. And there's plenty of articles on the, out there that explain all of this. If- Let me ask you this. Like 3%, it's enough that you can't chalk it up to, oh, somebody had a fat finger or Mary didn't know what she was doing. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it's not... 15%. So you can't necessarily say, oh, you know, it's an evil plot. But at the same time, it's not small enough. If 3% of the time a health system is making an error of that kind of, you know, that's illegal, are there processes that poor or did somebody, is somebody looking the other way? You, you know what I mean? Like, I know you're speculating here, but it's, it's, it's a strikingly high number to be an outright mistake. The definition of a fraud is not so much I'm knowingly and I'm doing it. For healthcare fraud, it's you are attesting when you bill for a service, you're attesting that's exactly what took place and that's the service that was rendered. When you submit that bill, that's your attestation that says, I know what I'm doing. I'm billing it and I'm doing it. And if we come down and we say across the board for the last five years, this is what you've done, then there's an intent there, isn't there? Like, it's not like we don't educate providers and that they're not getting educated out there. So that 3% that we're talking about, it flies underneath the radars. It's not the carriers that are responsible, the folks, the large entities that handle a majority of the processing across the United States. They have a different lens. They're not looking at those ones that fly underneath the radar, that 3%. They're kind of looking at, oh, who's that guy that's, you know, billing for cosmetic surgery that never happened? type thing. These are the little known things that we can identify across the board, across the United States. In the last 12 months, I'm speaking to data itself, real life data, that across the board, doesn't matter what region it's in, we're identifying where things are being billed, shouldn't be billed, and being processed that should have been captured. 100% preventable, by the way, that 3%. The system should be set up to capture that. So if I'm an employer, so I mean, it sounds like this this all is eminently catchable. You know what I mean? So the good news for an yes. employer is, is that if you actually have, I'm going to say, you know, someone without a vested interest that's playing both sides of the, the house here, you know, like if you have someone with the skills to, what do you call it, audit claims? Like what's the correct verb here? The word is the audit, right? The audit the claims, but we, we look at it as another, there needs to be another layer of claim administration services. Right now you're paying somebody to process your claims and they do pretty much a good job, but we know that there's a five to 10%, up to 18% factor, right? 
So there needs to be an embedded process that has no conflict of interest with any parties at all that is going to have a second look that includes like a safe harbor type of program where you've got your claims being looked at constantly on an ongoing moving forward basis. Because the last thing we want to do is keep capturing things on the back end. You have to, we have to stop that cycle. By doing the recovery, we have our finger on the pulse of the providers and they, we can tell which ones are actually, oh, they're not going to change their behavior. And most of them, by the way, are like, we had no idea. We hired a billing company. They increased our revenue. We had no idea. They literally will come out and say that. And I let them know, look, you are at full risk here. If you continue, like under our program, we're asking for the money back. Under Medicare or Medicaid, you can be shut down. You can be put on the exclusion list. That's where you get booted out of the federal and state health plan because you've been convicted of fraud. Alrighty then. (laughs) So we have the same companies who are helping self-funded employers recover dollars from claims, also helping those sending claims to increase those claims. That certainly doesn't sound like there's any potential for conflict of interest there. (laughs) But what about providers who want to do the right thing? You know, like, how do I make sure that I am not inadvertently harming patients and employers by trying to manage my cash flow? Even on that side, it's it's so important because there's some good folks out there, look, to make sure that whatever program you have in place, that there's a payment integrity program, a billing integrity program to make sure that you are in compliance. Does, you know, a physician or a clinician who is working at a large health system, does the equation change at all? Especially more so for the providers because they are really, the folks that are on the front lines, they're the ones at risk and they are really getting uh, a raw deal out there because... Most of the providers now are owned by large health systems, right? And they're using their licensures to bill these codes and the billing companies that are hired to bill these codes. I mean, Stanford, from what I read in the uh, complaint, it's a 600-bed hospital system. They have 300 billers, 300 billers for a 600-bed hospital system. There's something wrong with that story. Like that alone is like a red flag. Now, okay. Like I've been in the business probably too long, so you're going to hear that negativity. But the reality is any program that you have, if it sounds too good to be true, you've got to have another third party that's no conflict of interest. Check it out and make sure that everybody's flying right and that everybody's in alignment with the proper integrity principles and core values of that of that entity. Yeah, I could see if I'm a provider, though, you know, especially when payers themselves make life really difficult with stupid prior auths. There's some good prior offs, but let's just call out the stupid ones because there are. Like, Mm -hmm. they make it so difficult to do the right thing by patients that providers, in some ways, you know, like you get somebody who's doing, trying to do a really good job and do right by patient, and they realize that they have to write a different code in order for the patient to get the actual care that this patient needs because the payer is Mm -hmm. making it so tough. But then by doing it, the provider themselves is is at personal risk. Therefore, like, who loses in all this? The patient, right? Right. And just stay, stay above board and stay compliant. Yeah, no, there are some really bad deals that providers have within their contracts that just make no sense. And they've been forced to, you know, take what they can get. And maybe that's driving some bad behavior. But I think most, for the most part, 98% of folks really just want to do what's right. And they're there. They went to school to take care of people. They made an oath. The mucky muck comes in with everybody that's not even rendering the care. It's the private equity firms that came in. It's the large health systems that came in that are being bought out by 
folks that want to get into healthcare and make, you know, their millions and billions. I mean, look at some of the hospitals out there that are nonprofit. It's just insane what the system has turned into and it needs to change and it's going to change. Look, I think COVID has been a, a catalyst. And I know that's not part of our conversation, but I think it's been a catalyst to really, it resets everybody. Everybody's mind is reset on healthcare costs right now. Folks are wondering what's going to hit our numbers next year or this year. What's it going to look like at the end of 2020? We, we talk about a lot of serious things. We talk about you know some of the egregious behavior out there and what's really costing our system. But really, I like to end with whatever decision we make moving forward, just look over at that employer, that family, your neighbor, your aunt or your, your uncle and say, what's in the best interest of that average American out there? And if we just all did that and did what was right, it'd be a different world right now in, our, in, the, in the healthcare industry, for sure. I'm a believer in that. You and me both, my friend. So if someone's interested in learning more about Claim Informatics, what's your website? Where would you send them? Claiminformatics.com, one word. And or you can email me at d.cornelis, C-O-R-N-E-L-I-S, at claiminformatics.com. Don Cornelis, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.